I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me again to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, starting this week in verse 18. Last week we began our newest sermon series, very cleverly and craftily entitled, The Gospel of Matthew. Uh, I'm still working on a snazzy title for the whole series. We've begun a multi-month, maybe multi-year journey together through this theological biography of the most important person who has ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we looked closely at his genealogy, which was a lot more interesting than you might think at first. It turned out that his genealogy revealed his identity. It was like a form of ID that the first readers of this gospel would have considered valid and and interesting. Matthew gave us an account of Jesus' genealogy that presented Jesus as the son of Abraham, the son of David, the Christ. The son of Abraham, realizing all of God's promises. The son of David, ruling all of God's kingdom. The Christ, rescuing all of God's people. And Matthew arranged his presentation of the genealogy into three sets of 14 generations. Three eras, from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, and from the exile to Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus. 14, 14, 14. The perfect number seven multiplied by two, and three perfect sets of a doubled perfect number. I think that Matthew is saying by presenting it that way that the time has now come for the Messiah to arrive. The time is perfect, more than perfect, doubly perfect, triply doubly perfect. This is where the whole line of generations has been heading all along. What Paul called in Galatians 4, the fullness of time. This is what they've all been waiting for. If you're reading your Old Testament and you get to this spot, there's there's the break between the Old and the New Testament where everybody holds their breath and then Jesus comes. This is the person whom they've all been waiting for. And now it's time to read about his conception and his birth. Verse 18 begins, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus Christ. Now the funny thing is that there is very little about Jesus' actual birth in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Luke is the place to go if you want to know most of the details of that story. The who, what, where, when, and how. Matthew only barely mentions his actual birth, almost in passing. What Matthew does is give us mostly the backstory of Jesus' birth from the perspective of Joseph. Luke focuses mostly on Mary. Matthew focuses more on Joseph. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. Now that word birth in Greek is genesiosis. What does that sound like to you? Genesis, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Which means origins or beginning or births. Matthew is signaling from the beginning that he is going to give us the origin story of Jesus Christ. He's going to tell us how it all came down, the circumstances that surrounded Jesus' birth. And in particular, he's going to tell us about the scandal and how it was resolved. Let's pray together and then study it and apply it to our lives today. Thank you, Father, for giving us your word. Thank you for speaking to us and telling us what we need to know. This is what we need to know today about how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. The circumstances around his coming, his origin story, his birth story, his beginning on the human stage. 
Help us, Lord, to understand it and to see how it affects us as we go through our daily lives. We pray it in his name. Amen. There was a scandal brewing, no doubt about it. Verse 16 made it very clear that this genealogy that Matthew has given us was the genealogy of a man named Joseph, who was the husband, or became the husband, of Mary, of whom, feminine pronoun, Mary, was born Jesus, who was called Christ. So Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. Look at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now, take out those words of Matthew, through the Holy Spirit, for just a second. And you can see how you've got a scandal brewing. Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. The old King James word was espoused, espoused. And being espoused, being betrothed in this time period meant much more to them than our word engaged, right? And people start engagements and then they break them off. No big deal, right? It's painful, but then that's about it. But this was much more serious in their day. They had signed all the papers. They had, so to speak, been to the courthouse. They and their families had agreed before witnesses that these two were going to come together in marriage. Their betrothal period, often a year, was legally binding and could only be broken by death or divorce. But they had not yet come together. There, there was still some significant steps before Joseph and Mary were finally and fully married. And that included, included a wedding ceremony. And it included sexual intimacy and consummation. But they hadn't got that far. That part hadn't come yet. And yet Mary was obviously pregnant already. What happened? Well, if it was anybody else, we would all know what happened. Mary must have been with somebody. I mean, that's just how it works since Adam and Eve, right? And Joseph knew that it hadn't been him. And of course, Mary knew that she hadn't been with anybody. Matthew says that she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. That's a miracle. Don't miss that. Don't miss the miracle. Our Advent readings this year are all about the Holy Spirit, the, the true spirit of Christmas. We're learning about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the story of the birth of Christ. And we had three different generations up here, spanning four generations on the stage today. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. Don't miss this part of his ministry. The Holy Spirit was miraculously conceiving the humanity of Jesus inside of the womb of Mary, who was a virgin. Wow. That's strange stuff. That's what we believe. Now certainly that created a scandal. But what would you rather have? 
A non-scandalous birth of a regular old baby who can't save the world? Or a scandalous birth of a divinely miraculous baby who does? We know which one God picked. He picked the scandalous miracle. The question was, which one would Joseph pick? Look at verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, legally, if not fully yet, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, we sometimes have a hard time understanding what that means, what that meant for Joseph. It says here that Joseph was righteous. And at least in part, that must have meant that he felt duty-bound to divorce this seemingly adulterous woman. That's what a righteous man would do. He might think that fully marrying her would say to the world that he was guilty of fornication when he was not. Now our world just laughs at that. Our culture culture seems to think that it's okay for men and women to have sex together outside of the covenant of marriage. Even to live together like their husband and wife, but not be. But the Bible calls that kind of behavior sin. And Joseph was a righteous man. He wasn't going to engage in that sinful behavior, and he wasn't going to implicitly say to the world that he had. But the logic of verse 19 says more than that. It says that because Joseph was righteous, he not only wanted to do the right thing, but he wanted to show compassion towards Mary. Because he was righteous, it says, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He didn't want a big trial. He didn't want her to be ostracized and attacked, maybe stoned to death. Joseph could have demanded a public divorce and probably got to keep her dowry and the bride price that he had probably already put down because obviously she had reneged on their agreement, not him. But because he was righteous, he was merciful. I think that says a lot about what it means to be righteous. Joseph decided to divorce her quietly. Life was going to be hard enough for her to have no husband and to have an illegitimate son trailing behind her. You know, they probably didn't know each other very well. Betrothed couples in that day didn't have any time alone until they were married. They would have met. They would have maybe had some conversation, always with others listening. How must he have felt? So disappointed, so let down. This is the big moment of his life, and this. And yet he decides to not only do the right thing, but to do it as gently as possible. And then God intervenes. Look at verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And that changed everything. Now, I I have no idea what it must have been like to be visited by an angel like that. Perhaps the angel of the Lord. He's not named here. It it might have been Gabriel, but like Gabriel visited Mary and Luke, but we don't know this angel's name. All we get is his message, and it's an amazing message. Did you notice what he called Joseph? Joseph, what? Son of David. He knew the genealogy. This humble carpenter from 
Galilee, in Nazareth and Galilee, is a son of David. That's what we read about last week in the genealogy. This guy is the heir to the throne. In an alternate timeline, if things had gone differently for Israel, we'd be calling him King Joseph. King Joseph, heir of David, do not be afraid. Don't worry what they're going to say about you. Don't worry about what they're going to say about Mary. Don't worry about the scandal. I'll take care of that. It's worth it. Mary has not been unfaithful to you. Mary, Mary. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That child is very special. And then the angel tells us just how special he is. Verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you, Joseph, you, are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Two points this morning, both names. Number one, Jesus. Now, if you have the New International Version in front of you, it has a footnote for the name Jesus in verse 21. We're used to that word, that name Jesus. Our, our choir sang it to us a number of times. We sang it ourselves. But we don't always recognize what it meant in the original language in Hebrew. The NIV footnote says Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua or Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. Yahweh saves. That's why the angel says, give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The angel is saying that his name has prophetic meaning. Jesus means God saves his people. This little boy whom the angel is telling Joseph to adopt is going to be a savior, a deliverer, a rescuer. A savior from what? From the oppression of the Romans? What's it say there in verse 21? He will save his people, what? From their sins. Not from their enemies. At least not what they think of as their greatest enemies. What do you think of as your greatest enemies? Did you know that your greatest enemy is not your your problems? Your greatest enemy is not your fears. Your greatest enemy is not your earthly enemies like Korean dictators or ISIS terrorists. Did you know that your greatest enemy is not even Satan, the enemy of God? No, your and my greatest threat to eternal joy is our sins. Our sin separates us from God and makes us His enemies. It earns us His righteous wrath, and there's nothing you and I can do about it on our own. We are by nature, the Bible says, dead in our transgressions and sins, and dead people can't earn their way back. We can't rescue ourselves. We can't bring ourselves back to life. But God in His mercy has sent a Savior for us. And His name is Jesus. God saves His people. I know you know this. How many times have we read Matthew 1 together, right? But this is, this is so amazing. Here's how He did it. Jesus lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He lived in perfect, obedient communion with His heavenly Father. And then one day, He took on our sin for us. He died in our place on the cross. The Bible says Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 
And then three days later, he came back from the dead to give us the forgiveness of sins and new life. We're going to be reading about that as we, as we work our way through Matthew, and especially when we get to the end. But here it is at the very beginning. Jesus means God saves his people. Big question. Are you one of his people? That's a question that we all have to make sure we have answered for ourselves. The Gospel of John says, To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God's people. Children not born of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Are you born of God? Are you one of God's people? You get there through faith. And faith alone in Christ alone. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Because he came to save his people from their sins. It's not automatic. You need to trust him. You need to receive him and believe in his name. You cannot earn this salvation, but you must receive it by faith. Jesus means God saves his people. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful that Jesus came to save? You know, Jesus could have just come to observe. He didn't have to come at all. But he, he popped down here, and he could have just watched. Yeah, this stinks. Yeah, they're not worth it. He could have come just to judge. He shows up, and he wipes us all out. But instead, he came to save, to seek and to save what was lost. Praise God. And then Matthew takes over, I think, in verse 22 to show us how this was a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Point number two of two. His other name or title in this passage, Emmanuel. That's what the choir got up and sang to you this morning. Our God is with us. Emmanuel. Matthew says that all of this, not, not just the angels' greetings, but the whole thing, including the potential scandal, took place to fulfill Isaiah 7, 14. Now, that word, fulfill, is one of Matthew's favorite words. Get used to the word fulfill. And I know I'm not good at saying it. I always say, uh, how do I say it now? I say it wrong. I always say fulfill. Fulfill when it's fulfill, right? Is that right now? Okay. You're going to hear, I'm going to get it right by the, end, uh, by the end of Matthew. Yeah, right. Matthew uses it again and again. Matthew loves to look at his Old Testament and see what it promised and prefigured and predicted and then look at Jesus and show how he fulfills it perfectly. Three years ago, we studied this prophecy in Isaiah 7 and 8 in some depth. We took two weeks to unpack what it says and how it relates to Matthew chapter 1. Basically, it's a prophetic pattern. God promised King Ahaz a sign, even though Ahaz didn't want one. The sign would be that a young maiden would have a child, and before that child could even say, Mama, the threats that King Ahaz was so worried about would be neutralized. He would see that God is with his people Israel. But it was also more than that. That was like filling up the cup to halfway, or maybe even just a little bit of a quarter. 
When the Lord said in Isaiah that a virgin will be with a child, he actually meant that one day a virgin would be with child. A virgin would be with child. The Hebrew word in Isaiah 7.14 could be just a young maiden of marriageable age. But it could also mean someone who had never ever had sexual relations. And the Greek word used in both the Septuagint, the Greek translation of Isaiah 7.14, and in Matthew's Gospel right here in this verse, 23, is almost always used to, used to mean a young woman who has never ever had sexual relations. And we know Mary had never ever had sexual relations. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So Matthew saw clearly that all of this took place to fully fulfill Isaiah 7.14. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The greater Emmanuel, the greatest Emmanuel is Mary's son. Emmanuel was a pattern The first Emmanuel was a sign that God was with his people Israel. But the greater Emmanuel, the greatest Emmanuel, has come not only to be a sign, but to be the literal fulfillment of his name. God is with us. Literally. This is no ordinary child. He is literally God in the flesh. Jesus Christ was not just an earthly Savior who came to deliver people from their sins. Jesus Christ was and is God Himself come to earth and entering into humanity. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. See, Emmanuel wasn't His name like Jesus was. Uh, his playmates didn't say, hey, Emmanuel, come here, right? His name was Jesus. Emmanuel was his title. It was a title to describe the essence of who Jesus was and is. He is God with his people. Just think about what Emmanuel means. It means that God has walked on earth as a man. It means that God understands everything that we humans go through experientially, It means that because he was God, Jesus could infinitely pay for our sin debt against an infinitely holy God. In other words, because he was Emmanuel, he could be Jesus, our Savior. It means that God could reveal himself fully in language we understand, the language of humanity, of personal experience, of human love and sacrifice. He was the Word. It means that ours is a visited planet. We are not alone. There is a creator who made us and cares about us. Life is not meaningless. It means that humanity is not just an insignificant class of primates wandering around aimlessly on this planet. Instead, we're a significant class of beings created in the image of God and blessed by our Creator's humility to take on our nature. We, among the creatures of the universe, have a dignity that is unheard of because God became one of us, because God was with us, because God became flesh and dwelt among us. That's big picture stuff. Let's get personal now. Do you feel alone this Christmas season? Christmas is often a hard time for people. Winter has come. gets darker earlier. Financial burdens pile up. We spend too much. We eat too much. People get lonely. We miss loved ones who have died. Christmas is painful, sharp and painful for missing people, especially people who have died recently. 
I find this a very stressful time of year. Do you feel alone this Christmas season? You are not alone if you know Emmanuel. The most important person in the universe is with you and for you. You're not alone. Three years ago on Christmas Eve, I gave this summary of what it means for God to be with us. Not alone, not afraid, not abandoned, not ashamed. Not alone, not afraid, not abandoned, not ashamed. God is with you. Emmanuel. Do you need to hear that? I know I do. Because often I live like I am alone. Like I'm an orphan just floating in the world all by myself. And when I'm like that, I live in fear. I live in anxiety. I live in anger. I live in attack mode. I live in lying mode. I live in revenge mode. I live in impurity. I live in foolishness. Living as if God was not with me. We don't have to live like that because Emmanuel, God is with us. He is here. He has saved us through His Son. We can live differently now. We can live in joy. We can live in peace. We can live in increasing harmony with one another. We can live in hope. We can live in edifying speech. We can live in wise choices because God is with us. And if God is with us, who can be against us? It's interesting that the very last thing that Jesus will be quoted saying in the Gospel of Matthew is what? What's the very last word that Jesus gives his people? And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's, it looks at you every time you leave here, the words across the, the door on your way out. That's the last verse of Matthew chapter 28. It's saying, Emmanuel, I'm with you. Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. He embraced the scandal because he knew about the holy miracle. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. You know, Joseph never says anything in the Bible. He's never quoted in the Bible as saying anything. Mary has that whole song, and she talks back and forth with Gabriel. We don't ever get a quote from Joseph, no sound bites. He might have been one of those strong, silent types. We don't know. But we do know that he was a man of action. He was a righteous man. He was an obedient man. Joseph got up and he had that wedding. And after he was born, Joseph adopted that boy. He acknowledged him as his son. He took him to the temple and he said, here's his name. His name is Jesus. And that boy became his legal heir. And the heir of all of God's promises from Abraham on. An heir of the royal lineage of David. And Joseph named that boy Jesus like the angel said. And then that boy grew into his name. He saved his people from their sins. And he grew into his title. He was truly God with us. Emmanuel. 